I'm not a believer in a kind of automatic majority-minority nation that will come into being and be a basis for a democratic as opposed to a Republican politics. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. This is the last podcast of the year, and I want to look ahead for a moment to 2019. There's a lot of elections in which populists are likely to continue to rise, The one that people have been talking about the most for good reason is the elections for the European Parliament that are coming up in the spring. But there's many others. In Argentina, in Belgium, in Finland, we might see populist parties going to real strengths. But the other thing that's going on at the moment is that we are seeing how difficult it is for any government in the age of social media, in the age of economic stagnation for ordinary citizens to keep the hold on power. We've seen that in the midterms in the United States. We've seen it a couple of days ago in India, where the quite scary ruling party, the BJP of Narendra Modi, suffered a string of big defeats in important states like Rajasthan. And so I think that a second story of 2019 will be to see whether populists manage to rig the game sufficiently to stay in power, or whether they might lose power in India where well, there's an incredibly important election coming up this coming year. In Indonesia, where a populist government is being put to the test. In Poland, where the opposition probably has the last big chance to win against the law and justice government. And in a slightly different way, in Greece, where Syriza is first up for re-election. So, as always, I like to say I'm neither pessimistic nor optimistic. The important thing is not to be defeatist. In 2019, there will be plenty of scary moments, but there will also be plenty of opportunities for citizens to come out, fight for the values of liberal democracy and show that having experienced what populist rule looks like, they want them out of office. For this episode of The Good Fight, I had a conversation with John Judas. John is the author of a really interesting new book called The Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration and the Revolt Against Globalization. He's also an editor at large at Talking Points Memo. It was interesting for me because, as many of you know, I've been arguing for a form of inclusive patriotism in my book, in, in a lot of my uh, public writing. I myself feel quite attracted to the idea of overcoming nationalism, but have fought in light of some of the things that are going on in the world. But that's not actually a viable proposition, that if we don't fight for the terrain of patriotism, of nationalism, the far right is always going to be able to exploit it. But Fo John, I think, has a similar basic attitude. I actually have ended up disagreeing with him on quite a few things in this conversation. So I think it's the best kind of conversation where people have some of the same basic instincts, but then when we really think about what that should look like in the world and what the implications should be, they end up disagreeing quite a bit. So hopefully that'll be fun to listen to. So, John, you're, if you don't mind my saying, an old hand of the left, and here you are writing a book in defense of nationalism. How come? Well, look, you know, if you, you frame it as being in defense of nationalism, I think we'll get off on the wrong foot. 
because uh, there are obviously kinds of nationalism and expressions of nationalism that I don't support. I'm not a big fan of Hitler or Mussolini or a lot of these famous names from the past or some of the European right-wing populists. But the point I wanted to make in the book is that national identity is essential for things like democracy and for an advanced welfare state. If, for instance, I'm paying taxes and the taxes are going to some woman who is handicapped in Reno, Nevada, to help her out, and I, I will never see that person, I don't know that person, the only thing I know is that it's going to go to another American. That sense of national identity you have to have in order to have a welfare state. And once it breaks down, then you start to have problems like we have in the United States and Western Europe. When you start to, why, you know, why should we support those people? Because they're not really, quote, Americans, French, what have you. So let me try and put this in some context because, you know, I have some sympathy for that argument. What people say in response to me when I make it, though, is that perhaps we're being too narrow in our ambition or in our imagination. So the old dream, which is one that I strongly felt when I was growing up, is that, yes, today the world is defined by nations. The only way that we can get solidarity between people is that, you know, we emphasize that, look, we're part of the same nation. That's why we should help them. But perhaps that's too narrow. Perhaps even if it's going to be difficult, we should be pushing against that and learning to have solidarity with somebody who is in need of help, who is handicapped, irrespective of where they are. Why should it matter whether she's in Las Vegas or in Mexico City? Why should we confine ourselves to this form of collective identity when 300 years ago people weren't nationalists? They cared about the village uh, and so on. Now the nationalists, why shouldn't we try to expand the circle of human sympathy even further and throw the nation on the dustbin of history? Why, why don't you think that's the right approach to some of the dangers and limitations that come of a nation state? Well, you know, I think if the um, world is still around in two or three centuries, we might have that sense of a more global citizenship. But the questions about morality and what is right are bumping up against uh, human nature at this point. You start, obviously, with a family, and then you care more about uh, your children being in danger than someone else. And you ratchet it up to tribe, clan, and, and you know, we've arrived at the point uh, sometime, I would date it earlier than the 18th century, but whatever, where people do care about the nation and where it's an essential ingredient of our identities. We haven't yet gotten to the point where I sit in bed at night and worry about somebody in Nigeria or, you know, Sierra Leone or Uruguay. So if you want to base a politics on that or a policy on that, you're going to be talking to maybe a few zip codes in America, you know, let's say Cambridge, uh, you know, Park Slope, Brooklyn, I don't know. But it's not a viable politics. It's not a way to go about things. What you can do is you can argue that it's in our interest in America, for instance, to do something about climate change. Because it's a, you know, what happens to the planet affects us. But if you start to argue, well, we have to do something because there are going to be floods in Africa or somewhere, you're not going to get anywhere. I'm sorry, you just bump up against the facts of human beings and of history at that point. So it strikes me listening to you that there's three slightly different ways of making that argument. And I'd love to get your sense of which of those different positions 
you hold. So I think the first position is to say that there's something inherent in human nature that favors kin over stranger. That means that you care more about your children than about your neighbor's children, and perhaps you care more about your neighbor's children than those children who are 2,000 miles away. And that perhaps that's something to be celebrated. That's just part of human nature, and we should embrace it, and there's nothing at all wrong with it. The second position takes the same basic understanding of human biology, but then says, you know, this is not something to be celebrated. Personally, I wish that we had the same extent of sympathy for everybody around the world and that we could build a politics in which we are as willing to have solidarity with suffering people who are on the other end of the globe than people who are part of our own nations. But I simply don't think that we're there yet, right? I don't think that the circle of human sympathy has expanded that far yet. Perhaps it will because it has managed to expand from the village to the nation over the course of the last centuries, however many of them there were. And so perhaps 300 years from now, we will actually build a global community in which we feel connected enough to people very far away to have solidarity with them too. And then the third position would be to say, no, actually, that is not possible. There is only so and so far that the circle of human sympathy can go. So even two or 300 years from now, the idea of being connected to people who are that far away or to a human community that is that large is simply beyond the bounds of what is possible for the human animal. So it seems to me that you don't hold the first position. I'm not sure whether you hold the second or the third. Well, look, I don't think you should frame it in terms of human essences or biology. It's, it is more a matter of historical evolution. And again, I'm not an expert on evolutionary psychology. But, you know, obviously uh, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, people's primary loyalty wasn't to something called a nation. That's something that's had to evolve. I would be the last person to say that we couldn't evolve into a greater sense of who we are. I mean, the EU, the European Union's having that problem right now. Am I a European? Am I a German? Am I a French person? So it's a matter of history. So I wouldn't say that it, number three, that it's impossible at all. I'm again a, a number two, but I think that people at this point who want to base a politics on giving priority to this kind of global over national vision are going to run into a lot of trouble. And that, that's exactly what's been happening over the last 30 years is these various, uh, you know, I, I really think of them as kind of utopian projects have all come a cropper. So that sounds to me like position two, but we don't have to litigate that. What are some of those utopian projects that you think have gone awry and why has that happened? Well... First, you look at the economics, what came to be called the Washington Consensus, that you could sort of transfer the vision of a national economy that Adam Smith had, that if people, everybody does things according to their own interest, it'll be for the good of all, to an international economy. You could eliminate a lot of the barriers, tariffs. You could say people shouldn't subsidize their own uh, industries, so you'd have completely free trade. And out of that would come just a new era of prosperity that would be good for everybody. 
And it just hasn't worked that way. If you look at the kind of assumptions that Americans brought to China entering the WTO, that it would become a liberal capitalist democracy within a decade or so, and that it would play by the same rules. I mean, you, there you see again that sense of utopianism. The same thing with uh, Russia. The idea that if we uh, expand NATO and do all these things, there wouldn't be any kind of resurgence of Russian nationalism. Lo and behold, we get it. I think there's sort of two different questions here. It's not clear to me whether you're calling the international trading order itself utopian or whether you're saying that some of the expectations that people had about what would follow from it were utopian. So it seems to me clearly that the idea that integrating Russia into this then G8, giving China access to the WTO would be enough to create stable liberal democracies in those countries, you know, that's clearly come to look rather naive in retrospect. Yes. But it's not clear to me that that actually means that the trading orders themselves have been bad, certainly for humanity. As people like Steven Pinker have argued quite convincingly, actually, on most metrics of well-being, the world has continued to improve uh, very rapidly over the last decades. When you think of a share of human beings who are in dire poverty, when you think of the share of human beings who have access to education, when you think of a child mortality rate, on all of those metrics, this utopian project of international trade actually seems to have worked remarkably well. Two things. First of all, I'm not talking about averages again. My primary concern has been the United, what's happened in the United States and Europe. And there have been peculiar kinds of results of these projects that have occurred. But the other thing is that when I talk about a international trading order, it's not just the end to tariffs. It's also currency speculation, floating values of currency. The things that took us a few decades to realize could result in something like the Great Recession of 2008. So there is something wrong. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to repair it. I mean, I don't know how we could go back to the kind of more managed system that we had with Bretton Woods. But what I would say is that there's a problem and that the people who went into these things didn't see the problem clearly. Just like with the euro, you know, you had this banker who wrote these uh, critiques in 1992 of what was going to happen. And, you know, lo and behold, if you have a system where people can't devalue their currency and do various things when they get into trouble economically, you're going to have a dysfunctional economic system. But a lot of people didn't think that. And I have to say that I didn't myself thought that it was just going to work out fine. So I think that what we had with both the end of the Cold War and in the wake of this tremendous prosperity we had for 30 years after the Cold War was this kind of burst of utopian thinking. Maybe Fukuyama's book would epitomize that. And that out of that came these, these, again, expectations of what would come out of these various projects. And it's not quite working out. And so we see all this turmoil, a political turmoil now in the United States and Europe. And again, we can talk about other places, but I know less about them. You know, by the way, the, the story you just told about the euro reminds me of a point that I've made before on the podcast, I think, which is that the amazing way in politics in which the basic logic of a world both doesn't matter in the short run at all, 
but then eventually comes home to bite. I think we're seeing some of that with Donald Trump at the moment, where, you know, all of the allegations against him, all of his malfeasance doesn't seem to matter. But if he should drop below a certain point of popularity, if suddenly some of his key allies should desert him, all of that stuff will come back and matter tremendously. And I think commentators often get politics wrong when they have a basic prediction about the world. They see that it isn't taking effect. And so they say, oh, the laws have changed. We can ignore the basic logic because it doesn't seem to be happening. And when they get it wrong the first time and they get it wrong the second time. I think that was true of the euro. There was serious economists who pointed out the problems of having a currency union without having a political union. And you know what? For you know some 10 years, it didn't matter because there wasn't a crisis and all of those worries simply didn't apply. But once you had the big 2008 financial crisis, suddenly they came back to bite. And perhaps the argument you're making is that there's a similar thing going on with the nationalist project as a whole, that the idea of building, for example, a form of the United States of Europe, of leaving nationalism behind, worked for a little while, as long as the economy was going relatively well, as long as citizens gave a basic level of trust to the political elites, as long as they weren't sufficiently fed up to go and organize against it. But then in the long run, this basic nationalist logic that people's sentiments and attachments still are at the national level comes home to bite. Now, I think we share a deep fear of some of the populists who are exploiting this nationalist sentiment most successfully at the moment, whether it's Donald Trump here in the United States, whether it's somebody like Le Pen in France, whether it's other people around the world, including Narendra Modi in India and so on and so forth. It seems to me that there's two basic approaches here. One is to say, well, if they're weaponizing nationalism, there's all the more reason to push against nationalism altogether, to try and move beyond it. And another reason is to say, no, we need to compete for what meaning we give to nationalism. That was what you were bristling against at the beginning. No, no, I'm not a nationalist in any kind of description, but yes, we need to own a certain form of nationalism that pulls against it. So what does that look like, and why is that a better strategy than abandoning nationalism altogether? Well, it's starting to happen in Europe with the left-wing parties, with the social democrats. I mean, they're starting to take the issues about migration more seriously than they have. Uh, in Germany, both the SPD and the Christian Democrats uh, have moved on that issue since the 2015. So that's the obvious sense in which political movements on the left as well as the center have got to at least acknowledge that there is a problem. What's the problem? Is the problem electoral or is the problem a real problem out of the world? You know, again, it depends on the country. Let's say a country like Denmark, you do not really have a serious economic problem of migrants competing with uh, existing workers. You have a very high standard of living, a very advanced welfare state, but you have a serious cultural, religious problem. You have a very a people that have been homogeneous historically, suddenly faced with people with you know different religions. Sweden, you have a problem of economics where in the sense that you have a lot of people who can't be easily assimilated into a very advanced economy. So again, it's not a question of keeping people out, but acknowledging that there is a problem and trying to do, do something about it. 
And, you know, the great sin of miracle in August of the, that summer of 2015 was just sort of saying, well, well, let's just open things up. And then it was fine until you got cologne on New Year's Eve and things like that. And then it all blew up on her. So sensing that countries do have a national identity, people do have a sense of who they are, and they want to have something like a melting pot. Maybe that's not the right word. It's a very American kind of term. But if you're going to have the immigrants, you want to have it so that there is a degree of real assimilation, that everybody speaks the same language, that there aren't uh, religious clashes uh, recurring, which uh, dotted the history of Europe for centuries and centuries. So when you're talking about a problem, I guess what you're arguing is that that form of assimilation is not sufficiently taking place in countries like Sweden at the moment. If that's right, what's the response to it? You said it's not necessarily letting fewer people in. Oh, it might be letting fewer people in. Again, I know a million times more about the United States than I do about Europe, but the levels of migration have really gone down in the last two years, so we're going to have to see what happens. The main reason I think that the migration, both refugees and even the single market idea blew up was because of this fusion of Islamic terrorism and migration. Because, you know, then it meant that people weren't just going to come into your country, but they might end up, uh, you know, ramming a car into pedestrians and uh, blowing up a shopping mall. So in the United States, that's really why it became a major issue. It was a real thing before. You had uh, California, places like that, but it didn't become the kind of explosive issue until you had this kind of fusion. People forget about 2016 in our election. During that election, we had two major terrorist incidents, San Bernardino and Orlando. And I think that contributed a lot to the credibility of Trump and on uh, illegal immigration and all this stuff. Let's look at the United States. Again, asking the same question as before, do you think the problem in the United States is primarily electoral in the sense that you know, there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. There's obviously a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. And if we want to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't win re-election in 2020, then perhaps we have to do something about that. Or do you think that there is an actual problem, a normative problem out there with how things are going with regard to immigration or integration today? And that there's these sort of substantive reasons why even people who are on the left should want a set of political and cultural changes? We're a democracy, so what does electoral mean? Electoral means that there is a problem that a lot of people care about. Now, it may be that it is just a total fantasy, a total illusion. I don't believe that's the case. All right. Well, so that's an answer to my question. Yes, I think that's – is that what you're getting at? What are the reasons why people being animated by this and concerned by this is not just a total fantasy? Well, again, I think that when some people on the sort of, I'll say, on the neoliberal or cultural left side see people who are concerned because there are a lot of, let's say, signs in Spanish in their neighborhood that used to be much more homogeneous and where their neighborhood bar no longer exists, but it's a little a convenience store a 7-Eleven or whatever, that that's a kind of illusory concern. I don't think so. I think there is a problem of cultural identity that is real in the United States. There has been, to some extent, an economic problem at the bottom of the economy in terms of unskilled immigrants coming into the United States, both legal and illegal. 
Ironically, I think it has most affected first generation or second generation immigrants who are already here and uh, African-Americans who don't have more than a high school education. But a lot of those people end up voting Democratic and they're not the heart of the resistance to uh, immigration. It is more, again, the small towns, mid-sized towns in mid Midwest, South, whatever, who feel it on the cultural level as much as on the economic level. To unpack what you were just saying, you're saying that there are some real negative economic impacts on particular groups from immigration, but interestingly, it's not the groups that actually suffer from it that vote against it. And at least, let's say, that are up in arms against it. I mean, I don't trust a lot of the economics on this because it's so much driven by lobbies and who gives you money. But we had this tremendous civil rights revolution in the 50s and 60s in America, and we had these civil rights acts. And it was a time when I guess a lot of us hoped that we'd have economic as well as political integration. Blacks and whites, it's still the, you know, intractable problem in America. And I think one reason it might not have happened is because in 1965, we began to have enormous amounts of unskilled immigrants coming in, competing for jobs that might otherwise have been much scarcer, much higher pay levels, more ability to move up the ladder. So anyway, yes, I think that there is an economic dimension, but it's not necessarily the basis for uh, a lot of the uproar in the United States. The uproar is more uh, fusion of cultural change and terrorism on the one hand, and then the idea that we're paying taxes to support these people to go into emergency rooms or or God knows what. Again, this idea that democracies and welfare states have to be based upon the idea that you're willing to pay money for all these people who's based on their fellow Americans. And if you start to doubt that, if you start to think they're not really fellow Americans, they're here illegally, then you start to get the erosion of support for the welfare state. So there's two very interesting things in what you're saying. One is about what kind of vision we should actually have for immigration. I want to push you on that in a moment. But before we get there, there seems to be this tension in the world, as you describe it, between different groups, which a lot of commentators think are on the same side. So if your argument is true, then actually there is a real clash of economic interests between African-Americans and between second and third generation Latino immigrants and new immigrants, a lot of whom are Latino as well. Do you think that puts any pressure on this idea, which has a lot of currency, both on the left and actually in a different way on the right, of the inevitable demographic majority for Democrats, this idea that as America becomes more diverse, as it becomes a majority-minority country, uh, there's going to be this big electoral coalition of minority groups that will essentially make the Republicans uh, obsolete. Again, I'm skeptical about polls, but if you look at polls, you find something very odd, which is that Hispanics who are already here, who are citizens— are about as skeptical and about as unhappy with illegal immigration as so-called white Americans. There's not a big difference there. So there is a tension. What to make of it politically is is hard to say, but if Democrats assume that that's a policy, again, this is only support on the far reaches of the left, like open borders is going to attract a lot of Hispanic voters. I think they're under enormous illusion. 
Okay, so that's one point. The second point is that if you look at the works of somebody like the sociologist demographer Richard Alba, and there's a, some people in Texas also, yeah, I think at the, either at Austin or uh, Texas A&M who do a lot of these studies, and what's happening to second and third generation Hispanic mixed marriages and the kids identifying as white rather than Hispanic. I think you see a process of assimilation going on. I quote this in my book. In 1919, Harry Truman goes to New York, and he uh, writes back to his cousin, this town has 8 million people. 7,500,000 of them are of Israelish extraction, 400,000 WAPs, and the rest are white people. Now, what's interesting about that quote is that the Jews and the Italians are not white people. Hmm. After uh, World War II, takes a wall, Italians, Jews, Irish, all become white people. Uh, something similar is going to happen with Asians and Hispanics. And I think as that happens, too, you might find also that the politics change and that the political assumptions change and that as they move up the ladder, become more concerned about economics. I, I don't know. I'm not a believer in a kind of automatic majority-minority nation that will come into being and be a basis for a democratic as opposed to a republican politics. So that strikes me as probably right, and Democrats for a very long time have believed that the future is inevitably on their side, that demographics will keep favoring them more and more, and yet they've lost a lot of important elections, including the one in 2016. What I find interesting in what you just said, though, is that it's an essentially optimistic vision of the future, in part because actually, in my mind, the idea of the inevitable demographic majority is not at all an optimistic vision. Because even if Democrats by 2044 or something like that win every single election, uh, but if our politics is uh, divided, even then, so strongly along the lines of race, and this is a matter of Democrats squeezing out the demographic majority in each election with whites essentially consolidating as one resentful bloc, that sounds like a horrible vision of what that country will look like to me. So your idea that actually there is a lot of integration going on that in the same way in which we used to draw these very stark distinctions between Americans who hail from England and those who come from Ireland or Italy, we won't make those stark distinctions between Americans who are Latino and Americans who are not and so on. That gives me a lot of hope. It also makes me wonder whether we really have a problem. I mean, if you're right about that, then aren't all of the things we're seeing at the moment just temporary tensions uh, that are going to subside of their own accord? as immigrant groups assimilate and have spent more time here and so on. In other words, if that's the future, where's the problem? What do we have to change? Or do you think that the conditions to assure that assimilation are somehow fragile or not in place? First of all, we agree. It is an optimistic vision. I'm basically still a melting pot person, so to say. I mean, I think that that's been the secret of America's success and what we should aspire to, not something where we're constantly saying that we're so wonderful because we're diverse. We're wonderful because we all think of ourselves as Americans. So that's the ideal. But in terms of where we're going and how we're going to reach a point where, in effect, we're all white— put us on one side, again, the, the white-black problem, which is the, you know, again, historically, this intractable problem. And the rate of intermarriage is less, 
But again, you see some change there. In terms of assimilation now, Asian American, I would say very soon. And the Harvard suit is sort of a harbinger. The Asian American suit against Harvard about admission is sort of a harbinger because one solution for that is, well, why should we draw a distinction between whites and Asian Americans? So we're moving towards that, but the problem may be that we're moving towards it in terms of skilled immigrants and the people who come into the country who know the language and stuff like that. And if we continue to have, let's say, a million immigrants a year who are unskilled, who don't know the language, who cluster within particular communities and whose children don't advance up the ladder, uh, then we're going to continue to have a kind of Trumpian politics as part of our political outlook. We had all these tremendous battles over immigration from the 1880s to World War I, and they were solved by this incredibly bigoted, uh, racist, you know, whatever laws in the 1920s that suddenly cut our immigration short, especially from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. Now, that was terrible, and you could say it led to several million Jews getting killed from Central Europe, but the other side of it was it allowed for a process of assimilation to occur within the society and within the economy. So that's interesting because I agree that the best predictor of how well and how quickly people will assimilate is skill level. I mean, I think there's actually a really interesting contrast between Muslims in the United States and Canada on the one hand and Muslims in Europe. Canada has a point system which makes it much easier for high-skilled people to immigrate. In the United States, for various historical reasons, most of the Muslims who have immigrated have come in on H-1B visas for high-skilled people, or they've been relatives of people on H-1B visas who therefore also tended to be relatively highly qualified. And as a result, Muslims have actually integrated very well in North America and have a standard of living that's well above the average of other citizens. In Europe, you tend to have low-skill Muslim immigration, and that's one of the reasons why those groups have integrated less well. Now, on the other hand, looking back at the Irish immigrants and the Italian immigrants and all of those people of uh, Israelish extraction, as our former president somewhat weirdly put it in that quote you read out, you know, they were low-skilled by and large. And so why has Vivet succeeded? So your argument seems to be that that can succeed, but only if there's low enough levels of immigration? Or is it something that's changed about technology, where it used to be that low-skilled people could yeah, go that's, to the factory? Uh, or? You're hitting on the other element of the argument and something that makes it difficult, which is the uh, transformation of capitalism from an industrial economy where People could move up uh, the ladder within the working class itself. A third of Americans were uh, unionized, where you had people who were working relatively manual jobs who were, still had middle-class wages. Where we now have, um, partly as a result of the information economy, the destruction of the labor movement in the United States, uh, this tremendous uh, kind of disparity between an upper middle class. I'm not in the 1% versus the 99%. I don't think that's the big political problem. It's more the 30% versus the 70% problem. And where it really is uh, more difficult to move up uh, the ladder. And uh, you have college education costing so much, so on and so forth. So again, I'm, I'm acknowledging, yes, that there was a way in which it became easier for the Italians and the Jews and worked in, you know, the garment industry in New York, whatever, to move up the ladder and for their kids to move up the ladder than it might be now. It might be more difficult. So I want to return for a moment to this idea of a melting pot, because 
You know, I suppose in my mind, there's two models that I'm not quite convinced of. The first is this idea that sometimes in Canada is called the salad bowl, that it's sort of wonderful to have these groups continue to be very substantially separate from each other. You know, we really don't need any form of cultural value similarity. It's fine for everybody to spend the bulk of their time in their own groups, to intermarry at 99% rates, you know, as long as we have basic acceptance of legal rules, there's nothing to worry about at all in that. And that seems to me not a very attractive vision of the future, because I think, you know, having a society in which people actually have real friendships and probably relationships, some amount of real cultural exchange between different groups is, frankly, why I fell in love with the United States, why I came to this country, is one of the things that makes a multi-ethnic society potentially so rich and vibrant. And so this idea that, yeah, we'll all share the same country, but really will be these completely separate tribes, to me, is very sad. Now, I also think that, you know, perhaps there's something in the 1950s, 1960s idea of a melting pot that is overly simple as well. You quote in the book, Lyndon Baines Johnson, talking about, you know, all of these different people becoming part of one stream and they sort of, uh, you know, in this vision are undifferentiated and it implies that they've given up their cultural traditions in certain ways, that certainly at home they don't speak different languages. And that to me, you know, seems melancholy as well because there really is something that's rich about America that comes from not just allowing each immigrant to affect the sort of unitary melting pot in some kind of way, but in having some amount of real ongoing differences between them. And so I guess, is the melting pot the right response to the salad bowl? Or is it, I don't know, you know, a carefully composed dish? I, I don't know what the right culinary metaphor is, perhaps if it doesn't exist, but something in between those two, where, you know, we have real cultural similarities between all Americans in which we have common reference points in which, I don't know, we listen to some of the music and watch some of the same shows and two Americans who end up sitting next to each other, you know, on the subway actually have something to talk to each other about. And yet each also retains something really substantial from the kind of culture that they come from, perhaps even from the ethnic group that they belong to. Oh, uh, I'm totally for different kinds of restaurants, different kinds of culture, and that's not really the argument I'm making. What worries me is where the uh, celebration of difference becomes a denial of a common uh, nationality. That's really the uh, heart of the problem to me. And, you know, again, I find this among my uh, comrades on the left, that you have these ridiculous terms to me. Even like Asian-American is a crazy term. You know, you get Siberians, Filipinos, Vietnamese, Indians, Chinese, just incredible differences among them all grouped among this in order to make a point about, you know, people versus color versus people who are not of color. What worries me, again, is the creation of artificial differences on the one hand and the denial of a common nationality on the other, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So going back to what the vision is, what kind of political changes do you think we need in the United States in order to achieve your vision of what a multi-ethnic society should look like? Legislative reform or cultural change or how we talk about it? What's the lever here to get to a better future? Well, I have my solutions, but my solutions are just not politically viable right now. 
In terms of uh, immigration, I think the key thing is a path to citizenship for the uh, people who are here illegally or undocumented or whatever you know euphemistic term you want to use, because otherwise they're a kind of completely exploitable underclass in the society and their kids don't move up and everything. So that's a key problem. Once you have that, you can talk about uh, really enforcing our borders. You know, a wall would be okay with me, but if you have a combination of draconian restrictions on who can come in and you don't do anything about the people who are already here, uh, then you're just going to completely stigmatize them. So I think that's the key to immigration. But we're stuck on that, and part of the reason we're stuck on it is politically because the uh, Republicans are worried to death that if, you know, we allow more uh, Mexicans in, there'll be more Democrats, and the Democrats want everybody in and want citizens because then they'll, they'll be Democrats. So, I mean, there's this kind of blockage in our political system that doesn't allow this very obvious thing that's the most basic problem to be resolved. And, you know, you have repeated attempts to do that that fail. That's the heart of it. Then we can talk about something like a Canadian system or thing like that is providing the kind of lull that would allow us more assimilation and less of this kind of focusing on illegal immigration as the key problem. I want to close the conversation by going back to something that you wrote in your last book, The Populist Explosion. You draw a distinction there that I thought about a lot and that I think is quite helpful for I'm ultimately not sure that I agree with it. You said that there's this basic difference between left-wing populism and right-wing populism, where left-wing populism is dyadic, which means that it basically says it's us, the people, against the elites. Whereas right-wing populism is triadic. It's us, the people, against the elites and also against these minorities and outside groups, intellectuals perhaps in some countries, it might be gay people in some countries who really are part of a problem. Right Now, I see that distinction, that a lot of the time when somebody, you know, thinks the elites are all terrible and also hates Muslims, then we think of them as a right-wing populist. If somebody says, hey, you know, the real problem is that the millionaires and the billionaires are taking advantage of us and we need to expand the welfare state, then we think of them as a left-wing populist. I mean, the person who most famously does it, Bernie Sanders, in my mind, is not a populist, but that's a different conversation. I feel for that the last few years have slightly put pressure on that distinction. Because whether you look at a country like Venezuela, or whether you look at something like the Five Star Movement in Italy, which started off very much as a left-wing populist movement, it turns out that once you have this basic conception of politics being about a struggle of the people versus the elites, it's very easy to be pushed towards some other outsiders to scapegoat as well. So I think the Five Star Movement starts off as a dyadic movement, just saying it's us against Berlusconi and the corrupt system. But today, it has a tremendous amount of xenophobia in the heart of its system. And the same is true in certain ways in Syriza and Greece. The same is true of many populist movements that start off on the left. And one of the reasons why I'm skeptical about the idea that populism is somehow part of the answer, that actually this can be salutary, is precisely because its basic logic pushes you towards blaming all kinds of people. And I don't believe that real-life political movements are going to be able to police who they blame in the kind of way that this distinction suggests. So do you think that this distinction between dyadic and triadic populist movements still holds? And if so, is that a reason to be optimistic about left-wing populist movements? Or have you changed your mind on that? 
Europeans tend not to believe in this uh, distinction. Americans do more, I think, because we've had a, a history of left-wing populism in the country that begins in the 1890s. By their nature, uh, populist movements on either the right or the left are not the answer. They're more harbingers. They're more warning signals that there's something really wrong with this, with the system, and they can go in different directions. And I think that there are elements of populism, meaning, again, a kind of a demarcation between the people and an establishment or an elite who are blocking key demands, like Medicare for all, free tuition to college, nationalization, renationalization of the railroads, let's say. We're talking about Britain or a whole set of demands in France as well. So I think that there still are these kind of movements. The fact is that in the last few years, the right-wing populists uh, have uh, risen more to the surface. You can look at Sweden. You can look at Germany. France, again, is more ambiguous but I wouldn't say that, let's say, Podemos has gone uh, to the right. I don't think scapegoating is a key element of this. I think it's more, are they going to mature into movements where they have a possibility of really accomplishing something legislatively, or are they become merely protest movements? I mean, that's Huey Long's populism really was contributed to uh, Franklin Roosevelt's Second New Deal in 1935-1936. And that's the kind of evolution that you want from a left-wing populism. You could say, you know, in Germany, something quite different happened during that era. You know, I think versus two different phenomena that we call by the name of populist in the United States. I think a sort of robust politics of redistribution or of expansion of a welfare state is not in itself populist, which is why I don't think that Elizabeth Warren, for example, is rightly called a populist in the kind of sense in which I talk about the term. But I think once you I, make I think central to your to, politics what, what, this what, sort of opposition between the people and the elites and, and the way in which it delegitimizes anybody who disagrees with you and says, well, if you disagree with me, then you're just a tool of the elites and so on. Then I think you get into a coercive and authoritarian and blaming mode very, very quickly. I think one of the things to look for just in terms of populism and its rhetoric in the United States is the kind of pluralism you would find among, let's say, conventional liberals who think we want programs that appeal to business and labor, bring them all together, but that uh, recognize the real needs of working people in the middle class. Populism more, we have to defeat the billionaire class. We, we, we can't let them run things anymore. There is, again, this sense of a conflict where the other side must be overcome that you didn't find in the rhetoric of Hillary Clinton, but you did find in the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders. And it comes and goes, but that's what I would say is characterizes in America left-wing populism. Yeah, and I suppose I would say that there's a real distinction between how strongly you put your position to the current economic order and whether you're willing to say, hey, there's a huge power imbalance between the rich and the big corporations and ordinary people. And that perhaps makes you a populist in the 19th century American sense. But I don't think that that in itself makes you a populist in the authoritarian sense where we see sweeping the world. But once you start to say, hey, and anybody who disagrees with me on this is illegitimate, once you start saying that the elite is not just acting in their own interest, but they're sort of uh, instituting this great conspiracy around the world, then you really, I think, uh, become inimical to liberal democracy. And even if that doesn't start off with blaming uh, foreigners and outsiders and so on, 
I think it inevitably goes there. And that to me is the distinction between somebody like Elizabeth Warren and somebody even like Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom and certainly somebody like Hugo Chavez or Maduro in Venezuela. But I'm not sure we'll settle that today. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure, it was fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Buy 10 acres of fields somewhere in the middle of the United States and ride the good fight into that field as a kind of crop circle. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.